Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 25th episode of the 52-Bit Podcast. This is secretly becoming a singing show, and by that I mean me torturing you all to listen to that every time. Anyway, my name is Nita, and this is a podcast where we talk about something either you or I or both of us want to talk about. This week, we'll be talking about finite state machines, specifically the more finite state machine. Why? Because at some point, somebody asked me to explain something related to my degree and what I do at work for an episode. So I put a poll on my personal Twitter and uh, Finite State Machines won. So if you saw the title of this, it says Fancy Flow Charts. That's it. That's what a Finite State Machine almost is, is like a fancy flow chart. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Fair warning, I, I am an electrical engineer. I'm a digital designer specifically. So I use Finite State Machines all the time. However, I'm not a teacher, so this could be really bad, is what I'm saying. It could be really, really bad, but we're going to do it, so strap in. So finite state machines, if you've never heard of this concept of a finite state machine, it's basically a method of abstracting what we need a machine to do into like a bunch of states. So when you think about like a washer or a dryer or like your car or like anything, like they all have like given quote unquote, states they can be in. The easiest one to probably understand is a washing machine. So on a washing machine, it's usually just off, right? But you can turn it on. And so it has like a cycle where it adds water and then it like swishes your clothes around in the water and like turns the the washing, the internal barrel of the washing machine really, really quickly, drains the water, might soak it for a while, whatever. Uh, and at the end, you have cleaned clothes that need to be dried, right? So that's like the idea of a state, right? And to go from like state to state in a finite state machine, you basically have like like something needs to happen for it to change from one state to another. So for example, with that washing machine, when you turn it on, it goes to the first state of like filling it with water. And then depending on how much water it's supposed to fill for how large the load is, it will then transition to like the spin or soak cycle or whatever is next. So that's that's like the basic idea of a finite state machine. They're used a lot in computation. So you have two different types of finite state machines. Finite basically just meaning there is a determined amount of states, so it's not infinite. Just know that like a lot of examples of, of state machines are like the electronics you have around like your everyday traffic lights, um, elevators, vending machines, stuff like that. The ones that I want to talk about specifically are more finite state machines. So within computation, specifically when you're learning about control theory, we learn about the more and the mealy finite state machine. I focus more on the more finite state machine because that's, that's what I use at all times, basically. Um, it's more what we call synthesizable basically meaning it's easier to translate into code to then make into chips. Synthesizable is what we like actually make into chips in the real world. The difference is that more finite state machines are determined based on the current state that you're in versus mealy finite state machines um, are current and next state. That one I also don't like as much, so I don't talk about it as much. But the more finite state machine is really useful. And I personally... I think everything I've worked on has had a finite state machine in it at some point. Usually a more finite state machine that somebody has coded up and then you just you use it because somebody really smart made it. So I guess like 
the simplest way to make this make sense is that a state machine is like just a process that's going on, right? And it has some inputs coming in, so some outside logic or something acting upon it. For example, with like your microwave or like a washing machine, like you have to push the buttons, that's your input, into a state machine for it to know what it's supposed to do, right? So those inputs come in and they're translated into what we call transition logic so that stuff that's going to make the state change from one state to the next, right? And out of the states, you also get when you are in the first state of the washing machine, when it's filling the washer, obviously the output is water. It's physically going into the washing machine. So you'll have outputs. Sometimes the outputs change the transition logic that's coming back into the state machine. But that's like the kind of overall idea of a state machine. You got a state you're in, you got some inputs that are changing the states you're in, and then obviously there has to be a, something that happens based on the state you're in. Otherwise, like, why are we doing it? And it's presumed that you're going to do this over and over and over and over again. That's why you make a state machine for it. And we usually display this or look at it visually in the form of circles for the states and arcs, lines between the circles as the transitions. You can also put it into a table where you talk about the current state and then you put down like the input. So that would be the transition. And then the next state it would go to and if it has an output. That I think is more complicated to look at, but it is good to have both of them, a table and then the physical description in circles and arcs. But that's like the overall idea of it. And I'll, I'll put links down below if you guys really want to learn more about this. Like, that, that's really good, yeah. Right. So a lot of times uh, the thing that people have you think about when you're thinking about a finite state machine, specifically a more finite state machine, is like a traffic signal, right? And an intersection that has traffic lights on it. Because if all traffic lights went at the same time, we'd have so many accidents, right? At a four-way stop, you need two of them to maybe go at the same time and two of them to go at the same time or like each stoplight to go individually, whatever works the best in the situation, um, so that's typically what people try to like make people understand with a traffic light controller. So the inputs to that kind of signal would be the clocking mechanism. So the, how you keep time of like how long things are going to take a reset in case you need to like reset the whole thing and make it start again from scratch, such as if there is an electrical issue. And then usually like if you're doing a four-way stop, you have like the horizontal traffic and the vertical traffic on the same timers. So you have, you know, if you have a camera, you could have like the visual traffic on the horizontal and the visual traffic on the vertical. And then your outputs are how long are the traffic lights going to be green, yellow, red. So typically you would start with a start state. You could start with like one where the horizontal traffic gets to go and it's green and the vertical traffic obviously has to be red because you can't have traffic going vertically and horizontally at the same time. And you have this reset that starts you in this state. Or basically if there's traffic on that A line, uh, depending on the time they're supposed to have, stay in that state. And then basically you need to have a state that transitions to when the horizontal traffic starts getting a yellow light. The vertical traffic obviously should still have a red light. And then you have that time lapse where they have the ability to still go, but they can tell their time is slowing down. And then that needs to transition into a state where the horizontal traffic is stopped and the vertical traffic can go. So as with the first state, um, you need to be checking 
how long the traffic is there, if it's starting to hit that timing mark you want vertically on the vertical traffic, and then transition to where the horizontal traffic is still staying on a red light and the vertical traffic is yellow. And then obviously that should change back to when the horizontal traffic can go and it's a green light and the vertical traffic is a red light. So that's uh, typically what people make you think of when they first start learning about finite state machines because it's very easy to think of a traffic light. Most of us in our lives have seen a traffic light um, and can, you know, name the states. Oh, horizontal green. The first state would be like horizontal green. The second state would be horizontal yellow. The third state would be vertical green. The fourth state would be vertical yellow to basically keep track of like who's going when and everything. And this is a closed loop system, so it will consistently keep going because traffic lights continue forever. Obviously, there's also the idea of like, hey, what if it's uh, timed and it only works 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. and we have a curfew, right? So then you could have like offshoots of this where it goes into that flashing red light on both sides and you just assume, you know, not many people are out. They can figure it out and treat it like stop sign. But that's not really what's taken into account when you're first teaching. Obviously, after that, you can start thinking of like the side cases of that like curfew color or whatever. So that idea is also mapped into a transition table as necessary. When you're doing this, I said both are not necessary, the transition, like the table of all the states and like the visual of it. But making a table is really nice because sometimes you'll have states that are just the same. And because of that, you can like narrow down the amount of states you have. For example, had we had a state where the horizontal traffic was green and the vertical traffic was red, and then we had another state where we were transitioning green to yellow for the horizontal traffic, but we were still very much green and the vertical traffic was red. And then we had a state where the horizontal traffic was yellow and the vertical traffic was red. We would realize that the second state is not really necessary um, by looking at it in a table and we could remove that state. So it's, it's really used for simplifying things and also understanding when things are supposed to transition um, slash any outputs that you need. It's really helpful to look at it in a table. Basically, after you do that, you, you want to code it up. So a lot of my job is, is spent coding in RTL, which is register transfer language, basically meaning you can take this code and it is synthesizable. So it, it dictates or says basically what a circuit is going to do once it is created. Because our world in digital works in zeros and ones, we don't really have to think of like transient delays or anything. We do have to think of like long delays and stuff. We don't have to think of something shifting from zero to one very, very slowly or anything. So that's why we're able to code this up using a coding language and basically generate a real chip to do this or put it on an FPGA. More about that? Never. Typically, finite state machines are encoded. So what that means is the states, we can't just put the states called like green-yellow, right? Or like yellow-green. They have to have a binary value related to it. Binary being either zero or one. It's like a number, but computers understand that language. For clarification, we live in a world that lives in base 10, you know, 1, 10, 100, 1,000, etc., um, if you look at that, that is base 10. If I were to transfer those numbers into binary, it would be base 2, which is 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, etc. So the numbering looks different, but computers understand binary 0, 1 because it's either true or not true. It's that high or low. So finite state machines 
have to be encoded in binary. They're typically done in one-hot encoding, meaning there's one state per bit, one state bit per state. So if you have four states, then you have four bits. And basically in each one of those positions, there will be a one. So that two, an untrained eye looks like a 1,000, a 100, a 10, and a one, where the 100 has another zero in front of it, a 10 has two zeros in front of it, and a one has three zeros in front of it. But to an eye that works in binary, it would be state one, two, four, and eight. This is typically done to just make it semantically more meaningful and it makes more sense. Um, it also prevents a lot of errors. Um, it does require more flip-flops, though, or I'm sorry, more gates to basically make that happen. So not always the best, but you know. If you can find a way to do that encoding with less bits, so let's say you have like 50 states and you want to do one hot encoding, that's a lot of bits. So if you can find it a way to do it in less states and also less bits, that's usually good. A lot of the state machines I've had have usually had about six to seven states, but have only used four bits to encode it. So yeah, that's typically because you don't want a finite state machine with like 50 states that gets really, really complicated. So we usually end up breaking down a bunch of finite state machines into smaller finite state machines. Um, in that method, what you would do is you'd have basically like two modes and like have them related to each other in a way. So basically when you're like making a finite state machine, the steps tend to be like you need to identify what your outputs are and what your inputs are. What am I putting into this system and what do I want to get out? I typically then create a transition diagram. So you're like, oh, like with the stoplight, I need it to be green here, yellow here, red here. Well, I need this other one to be green here, yellow here, red here. How do I make those work? You sketch that up, then make that into a transition table again to see if you can like simplify anything, make sure everything is covered. Sometimes go back and change the state transition diagram, go back and forth between those two steps, and then select the encoding. After you write up, select the state encodings, you basically write equations for the next state logic and output logic, and you sketch the circuit. So a lot of that is because we don't work in like LDOs or anything. A lot of it is just kind of boxes to be like, all right, so I need like logically need some combinational logic here. Combinational logic being AND gates, OR gates, whatever you need, taking in information and throwing out information very quickly. And then maybe after that, it needs to be registered or saved somewhere in a flip-flop. Flip-flop holds data and it registers data from that combinational logic. And then afterwards, that data is sent out to more combinational logic, maybe. That tends to be how it is. And then outputs are based off of that. And yeah, so that's kind of what, uh, how a more finite state machine works. That's a lot of my job, to be honest, is looking at state machines, making sure we know how they work and how to make them work more efficiently. For another example, I was asked to try to make a finite state machine of making a cake. So I tried to make this as vague as possible. And here's some homework for all of you in case you wanted that. See if you can make this finite state machine better. I didn't make a state transition table for it. I just did the first step of making a diagram for it, a state diagram. But that's all I did. So good luck. So this is finite state machine for making a cake, right? So the first step is we have what is called an idle state. In most finite state machines, you will have what is called an idle state where you're basically waiting for something to occur or like not doing anything. So this is before you decide to make a cake 
Or like after you've made a cake and you're like, I don't want to make another cake. I'm done. Right. So this is the state that you can have like a reset from um, or like a start from basically. I then have all these inputs, right? When you're making a cake, you need like ingredients, you need the equipment to make the cake, and you also need the recipe. So I am making the assumption that in this system, you have some ingredients in your pantry, you have an oven and like pans to work in the oven to make a cake, and you also have the recipe for the cakes you can make. This is going to be generic, though. So, you know, depending on which ingredients you have, you'll make a specific cake. But basically, step one is you'll see, oh, I want to make a cake. So you'll say, I'm going to start making a cake. At this point, we will set a part of memory to say, I'm going to start making a cake. And I want to transition from the idle state to the prep state. Prep state is obviously where you double check that you have everything, you like start prepping, bringing out ingredients, preheating the oven usually if if you're going to bake a cake, uh, getting out the correct pans and like lining them with parchment paper or tin foil, all that jazz. And then you'll be like, all right, I have prepped enough. I'm going to start assembling this cake. So the first step in making a cake is obviously once you do that, you like start to assemble in, in like real finite state machine terms. This is probably where we'd start bringing out like timers and stuff to make sure tasks are getting accomplished. So in like real life, you're not like timing yourself and being like, I have to prep this cake in like 20 minutes. But the idea is a computer has to work in a specific way and it needs to know when it's done with something. So we're going to assume that when you're assembling, it's just going to take you a certain amount of time to do things such as mix the dry ingredients, mix the wet ingredients, and then put the wet and dry ingredients together, right? So we're under the assumption that you as a person are going to go from all your prepped materials, put the flour, the sugar, the whatever, salt, whatever, mix it all together, and then get your eggs, your butter, whatever, beat it all together, and then put them together. And that's going to take you a certain amount of time But we're just going to say that computer is going to assume it's going to take you five minutes to do all that because you're amazingly fast. At the end of that, that task should be done. If it's not, you realize you don't have all the ingredients because you prepped incorrectly. Maybe you missed something. We can either start again from the idle state and give up making a cake because we need to go to the store to buy something. Or we can just go back to prep if it's something we can find. But assuming that you have everything, we can just assemble it and put it all into pans. From here, we have two options. One of them is to bake. If this is a cake we need to bake, we can put it in the oven and just bake it and wait for the allotted amount of time for it to bake. Or if it's a cake that doesn't need to bake, we can immediately skip to decorating. Either way, when baking is done or if baking does not happen, baking being another state, we can transition to decorating. So after you take a cake out of the oven or once it is assembled, no baking needed, you can start decorating. So this is the part you would pull out the ingredients for um, making the frosting or maybe there's sprinkles on this cake or like, I don't know, edible flowers or something. And then you put all of that on the cake, putting that all together, decorating it. We're going to say it's going to take a certain amount of numbers of things you're going to put on the cake. So you're going to count. I put the frosting on. I put the sprinkles on and I wrote happy birthday on it and then the cake is done right so at this point on the decorate point we're going to send out a flag and be like hey the cake is done the cake is done we can eat it yay and then we're going to transition from the decorate step to the eat step 
this is where we eat the cake. We enjoy it. Doesn't matter if you do it on your own or with people. You just eat a cake. It's enjoyable. And during this, I'm going to presume we eat the cake. We send out another flag being like, we ate the cake. We've done our job. Yay. Amazing. You can then basically move back to the idle state. Lie on the floor after having eaten too much sugar or enough sugar. Who knows? And enjoy your time after making your cake. So yeah, that is my finite state machine for making a cake. Let me know if I missed anything or if you think anything should be added. But that is finite state machines. That is specifically more finite state machines and how I use them at work. And by that, I mean mostly me talking about washing machines and cake. Hope you all learned maybe something. Just know that like your electronics are really smart, but they were coded up by somebody. So they can only do what they were programmed to do. These finite state machines basically have a certain number of states. They can only do those number of states. It's not like, you know, a human that can change things immediately. Like if you were baking a cake, you know, sometimes while it's baking, you can also decorate things or prep another cake. This finite state machine would not do that. It would just, you know, bake the whole time. Also, you know, if you're washing your clothes, if you're hand washing things, you can like soak three times, but a washing machine is only going to soak clothes once because it's programmed to just do that. Cool. Thank you all so much for listening to that. That's the main topic for the week. For the sidebar, we have one from Greenwill. Hey, Greenwill. Greenwill had a question stating, who would you want as your roommate if you were to live on Sesame Street? So I'm not going to lie. I don't remember all of the Muppets all the time, but I did look up the Muppets again and specifically the Muppets that were on Sesame Street, because I feel like there's just a handful of Muppets that extend past Sesame Street. But yeah, I think truly, if I were to talk out of all of the Muppets that ever existed, it would be Beaker, because Beaker reminds me the most of frazzled engineers who are accidentally messing everything up sometimes. But I think if I was choosing just from like the Sesame Street characters from the Wikipedia article, uh, I'm also trying to like choose one of the Muppets that I watched as a child on Sesame Street because there's definitely obvious Sesame Street's been going on for very very long much longer than I can even fathom when did it start it started being written in like 1970 and is still going so like there's definitely characters that I don't even know exist gut instinct is to say Oscar the Grouch because I feel like we all need that roommate who's just like, oh, the world is the worst uh, and keeps to themselves in the trash can. But uh, I don't think I've ever had a roommate like that. I feel like most people have a story about a roommate like that, but I don't, I think I might have been that roommate occasionally, actually. So I think that's why I don't. I could definitely see the Cookie Monster being my roommate and then us never living together ever again because the Cookie Monster would encourage me to eat a lot of cookies and... I love sugar, but that's a problem. Like, I don't need that man, that much sugar all at once. So I'm going to, yeah, no, final answer, Cookie Monster. Real answer, Beaker. But yeah, thank you so much, Greenwell, for the question. Yeah, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, next week is the 26th episode of the 52-Bit Podcast. Technically, it's the 28th, but I did, uh, I did mess up two weeks. So next week is the official 26th episode of the 52-Bit Podcast. We're going to do something really special next week. And by that, I mean uh, not that special, but it's special for me. So if you could hang out with me next week, I would appreciate it. I think it's going to be oodles of fun and I think you'll really enjoy it. So yeah, thank you all so much for listening. 
If you have any comments, questions, concerns, um, ideas for ways to inject toothpaste into people's gums so they don't actually have to brush their teeth anymore, message me at 52 underscore bit podcast on Twitter or 52 bit podcast at gmail.com. The 52 in both of those is numeric. And yeah, thank you all so much for listening. My name is Nita and I'll talk to you later.